We're in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13 today. For the promise of Abraham and his offspring, that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherence of the law who are to be heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who also gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that, did not, that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, that he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. These last weeks we have spent much time in chapter 4. And it's a good place to spend time because in chapter 4 we have the essence of Christianity. The essence of what God does to reconcile man to himself. And Paul says it from all different angles. He says it doesn't come by works. You can't work your way there. It doesn't come by the act of circumcision, by the act of something on our external bodies. That's not the way that man is reconciled to God. It doesn't come by the law, by trying to adhere to the commandments. It comes one way and one way only, by faith. A faith that we share with Abraham. The faith of Abraham, in fact, is what we talked about last week. He was the father of us all, all who are reconciled to God. Because he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised, even when what he promised was humanly impossible. That's the faith that Abraham possessed, that God would do what he promised, even though there was no human way in which that promise could be fulfilled. Only way it could be fulfilled would be for God to do it. What was humanly impossible, God promised to do. Abraham's children must too possess that same kind of faith. If we're to be saved, if we're to be reconciled with God, we must too possess the faith of Abraham and be an heir of Abraham because we possess that faith that puts us into Christ, if we're to be reconciled. A faith that says and knows that what God has promised is humanly 
impossible. But God doesn't ever not fulfill a promise that he makes. That was the faith of Abraham. Romans tells us that God provided for us in the same way. We who have, if we're reconciled to God, the faith of Abraham, he's the father of our faith in that sense. Because God provides for us. That's what we've been walking through in Romans. God provides for us a righteousness that we could not produce ourselves. That is the heart of the gospel. But now a righteousness from God has been revealed that is by faith. Why is it by faith? Because you can't, you can't produce it in yourself. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've walked through those texts. We spent weeks, weeks pounding home God's message in Romans that there is none righteous, no, not one. And if we are going to have a righteousness, it will not come from us. It will come from another. It will come from the work of another, Jesus Christ. And because he perfectly fulfilled that work, he is willing to give it to those who trust him for it, who trust him for something that is humanly impossible to produce. You see how it coincides with the faith of Abraham? What was humanly impossible, Abraham believed God to do. And it's the same for us. It's the same for who, we who walk in Abraham's footsteps. That's why the text here, look at it with me this morning. It's why it says... In verse 23, these words. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. What was counted to him? Righteousness was counted to Abraham by faith because he believed God. He believed the promise of God that was humanly impossible. But it goes on to say it wasn't written just for him, but for our sake as well. For us also. That's us here and all who have through the centuries, shared the faith of Abraham and been an heir of Abraham, an heir of the promise to inherit the world which Abraham was told he would inherit, a new heavens and a new earth. But it's for us as well. And for us as well, God does something that we can't do. And the faith of a Christian is to believe that, to believe it to be true for us, believe it, to the point of staking our life upon it. Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary, says, what is true of Abraham is true of every man who has ever been or ever will be reconciled to God. That is the only way to be reconciled, to trust the promise of God to provide a righteousness whereby we can stand in the presence of a holy God one day. I hope that you've been reveling in that over these weeks and even as you came in this morning and realized that we were coming to the table which is our custom once a month that your heart connected back to some of those things we have talked about in Romans and what I want to do this morning before we come to the table is I just want to quickly walk through what that faith was grounded upon that faith that trusted the promise of God the righteousness of God what it what it what is it grounded in? What is the foundation of it? Because Paul doesn't leave chapter 4 where he has been talking about being reconciled to God and how it happens and how it doesn't happen. 
without telling us what that foundation is. So look at with me. The last few words of the book, of, or chapter four, say this. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus Christ, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So what, what is the foundation that that faith that justifies us that connects us to the righteousness of Christ. What is it grounded in? Why, why can God be, as the scripture says earlier, just and justifier of those who have faith in him? Why can he be both just and justifier? Not sacrifice his holiness and yet forgive our sin. Why can he do it? And it tells us right here in a succinct place as you will find in scripture. So let's look here. First of all, it is a faith that is grounded in the glory of God. It is a faith that is grounded in the glory of God. The scripture says, it is counted to us who believe in him, him, God, God. God did this work that we're going to continue to unpack, this grounds that we're going to, but it's, it started with God the Father. It starts with him. And one of the things we have said as we've walked through Romans, and which is really a, a theme of Romans is that God will not share his glory with another. It's why again and again it says, lest any man should boast. There is no place for boasting in us. The only safe place to boast is to boast in the work of another, Christ. You see, God won't share his glory. And if, if we have a part in it, then we take part of the boast, don't we? We want to take part of the credit. But in this case, God says, I will not share my glory with another. And so first and foremost, it is built on the grounds that God has chosen to save a people who in themselves have no possibility of being saved. It has to be God. It has to be him. He must do it. Same way with Abraham. The possibility of children had way long passed Abraham and Sarah. The only way the promise that he would have an heir was that God would have to do it. You see the the way we share in the faith of Abraham? Do you see that those who are reconciled are those who share in that faith of Abraham, who believe God to do something that is absolutely impossible, except God does it, and God has done it. That's what he says here. God, he raised up the Lord Jesus. It's not a belief in God in general that we're talking about here. There's lots of people who have kind of a general belief in God. That won't save you. That won't save you. There's a specific belief in that God, and the first thing in that is that God will not share his glory with another. God is doing it. God is doing it, but then it goes on to tell us how he does it. The specifics of how God is both just and justifier of those who have faith in him. And it has to the second point. The second point of the grounds upon which that faith rests, and that is that God grounds it in the fact that he raised from the dead 
Jesus, our Lord. He raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord. First of all, God has done something special. He's done something special in this. He's he's raised up Jesus, the resurrection. We'll come to that in the next point. But God has done something uniquely special that only he could do. Abraham, you see, at one point in his life had a general belief in God. He was a God-fearing man. But then God came to Abraham and he spoke specifically to him. He gave Abraham a specific promise. The promise that though he was way past time and Sarah was way past the time that they might bear a child, that God was going to cause them to bear a child. You see, the general belief is not what saved Abraham, but it was when he believed the specific promise of God, the specific promise that he would be and have an heir who would bless the world. The blessing of that heir ultimately led to the Christ in that lineage, and Christ would bring blessing to the whole world. But Abraham believed against belief, against all possibilities of him doing it. In fact, there was a time that Abraham even faltered a bit in that Remember, he, he, he got weary of waiting and his faith faltered a bit and he decided to take it into his own hands. And so he took his maid servant and thought, this is the way, but God again showed him, I will not share my glory with another. It would not be through Ishmael, but through Isaac. But again, It's a specific belief. This this grounds on which we stand is not general, it's specific. It's specific. The scripture spells it out that God will raise up from the dead Jesus, our Lord. It It was that specific promise that Abraham believed that God says it was counted as righteousness to him. And it's the same for us. It's a specific belief. It's a belief in the fact that God has raised his son from the dead. But let's dig a little deeper into that. Why does that belief, why does that faith have the ability to reconcile us to God? There are many who want to throw it out. There are many who want to say, we can have Christianity without a literal resurrection. Christ. Now they say it, but they said it back then. Listen to what it says in Corinthians. Listen to what Paul said. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then there not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he would raise Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is not true that the dead are not, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and then this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Not a general belief, it's a specific belief in the fact that God raised Christ. 
God raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Now, what does he say in that? Why does that specific point make all the difference? And he goes on to say why. He goes on to tell us why. It is essential that the faith that you have is a faith in that. Because this is what it accomplished. First of all, it is a faith in the fact that Jesus was Lord. He, he specifically doesn't say raised from the dead Jesus, but he says Jesus our Lord. First of all, part of the specifics of that is Jesus was just not another man who God raised up, but he was God in the flesh. He was Lord. He was the eternal son of God. He was God. So God the Father raised God the Son. Fully God from all eternity past and fully God from all eternity future. But 2,000 years ago became fully man as well for one purpose and one purpose alone, that he might die, that he might be raised. That Jesus. That specific Jesus. There are lots of Jesuses. There are lots of people who believe in somebody named Jesus, but you must believe in this Jesus. This Jesus who was Lord, who God raised from the dead. And then it says something incredibly, incredibly amazing. It says, who was delivered up. This Jesus who was delivered up. Now stop there. Don't, don't go any farther yet. He was delivered up. Who did the delivering? Again, God did. Because God was the one who would not share his glory with anyone else. God was doing this. He delivered him up. Why did Jesus die? Romans chapter 3 tells us that God put him forth as a propitiation for us who believe. Isaiah 53 says this, and the Lord, and the Lord the Father, laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And then in verse 10, it says, yet it was the will. I've, I've oftentimes told you, I think you could insert the words pleased. It was the will or it pleased the Father. It was the will of the Father or it pleased the Father to crush the Son. Just, just let that sink a minute. It was the will of the Father to crush the Son. He has put him to grief. And then in Acts chapter 2, if there's any doubt that God did the delivering, God the Father did the delivering of the Son, Peter at the day of Pentecost stands up and says, this Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus who was God, Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. God delivered him up. He delivered up Jesus. He delivered up the son for our trespasses, he goes on to say. But it was God who did it. You see, God is doing his work. He's not sharing his glory with anyone else. He comes after a people who could not produce a righteousness that would be satisfactory and be enough. And so he begins to put into play his plan of delivering up his son 
to be that righteousness for us. God is the one raising the son. God is the one who delivers him up and raises him for our justification. He raises that son for, what's the resurrection? I thought Jesus died for our sin. What is this fact that he's raised for our justification? You can't separate the two. Because if Jesus had not been raised, then it would have said, it's not enough. It's not adequate. It's not sufficient. More needs to happen. But the fact that God the Father who delivered up the Son for our trespasses raised him to life is the declaration of the Father that the Son has borne the full punishment of the sins of all who believe. That the law is fully and completely satisfied. That God has fully propitiated and completely is fully propitiated and completely satisfied with the work of the Son. It's why Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. It is finished. God has done what he needed to do to fulfill the promise to save a people. And now we need to look to the promise. That's the only thing that will save us, to believe what is impossible in ourselves. Exactly as Abraham believed God, even though the fulfillment of that promise was impossible within himself. There's lots of pictures that Romans gives us and the scripture gives us. Another picture it gives us is a picture of a high priest that that Jesus is the true high priest. Remember in the Old Testament, the high priest would go into the temple. He'd go into the temple once a year to make sacrifice for the sins of the people. But the problem with that high priest, it had to be done year after year after year after year. But when that happened, when the time came, when the day of atonement came, and the high priest went into the temple and then went into the Holy of Holies, which took elaborate preparation to walk into, they sewed bells in the hem of his garment. And so the reason for that was that As long as they heard those bells, they knew that the priest was continuing to minister. And they knew that if they quit hearing those bells, if they went silent, that the sacrifice for that yearly sacrifice was insufficient, that the priest had been struck down, his sacrifice was not enough. But again, it had to be done year after year after year. Scripture likens Jesus to the perfect high priest, the one who finished the work, who has now entered into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father because the work is finished. It's completed. And he waits. He waits for those who have faith in that work to one day come to be with him in a new heavens and a new earth and to reign with him. You see the work of the resurrection declares all of that, that it was enough, that it was sufficient, that nothing else has to be done except for us to look to that work to be reconciled to God. 
as we come to the table this morning, I want to, I want to read, actually, the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I considered paraphrasing it, but I think it's better just to read it. And again, liken it back to the whole connection that those who are reconciled to God, the scripture says in Romans chapter 4, are those who share in the faith of Abraham. And last week we talked about not only do we share in the faith of Abraham, but if we do, that Abraham was promised that he would be heir of the world and all who share in that faith are heirs of the world. One day we'll inherit a new heavens and a new earth. And that that's the only way That's the only way we will be reconciled to God is if we have and share in the faith of Abraham. But let me me read on a little bit of what he says and then we're going to come to the table this morning. Stay with me as I read it. It It is powerful because what he does here is describes what is the faith of Abraham as it applies to us, the heirs of that faith and the heirs of that promise. He titles it, What is Justifying Faith? What is a faith that reconciles us? This is what he says. It is the faith that believes what God says in Christ in spite of all I know about myself, my past sins, my present sinfulness, in spite of the fact that I know that I will still have an evil nature within me which makes me say with Paul, In me, that is, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Justifying faith is that which enables a man to believe the word of God in spite of all that, to believe the word of God in spite of knowing his own weakness, his own proneness to fall, his own proneness to fail. That is justifying faith. We must always remember this analogy of Abraham, how helpful and encouraging it is. Abraham's faith was a faith that held on to the word of God and gave glory to God in spite of all he knew to be true about himself. Your faith and mine must be the same. It is of no use saying, I would indeed like to believe, but I have been a terrible sinner. The Christian is a man who says, yes, alas, it is true. I have been vile and horrible and a desperate sinner. Yet I believe I stand righteous in the presence of God in Christ. He can face his past. He can look into himself and see the vileness and the pollution of sin still remaining. And when the devil says, do you think you have a right to say that you are a Christian? He says, yes, I do. In spite of the fact that all of this is true of me, I know I am righteous in Christ. He does not look to himself to find justification. He looks entirely out to Christ and all that he is in Christ. He believes his word about the resurrection, the proclamation of God in raising Christ from the dead. He looks to that in spite of all. Faith is the confident protest against every voice that assails us from within and from hell. It stands with Paul in chapter 8 and says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is it that condemneth in the light of that? There is no one. There is nothing. It is in spite of what we know about ourselves, of what the law knows about us, of what hell knows about us. That is the final word. Abraham did not stagger at the greatness 
of the promise. The devil will come to you and voices within you will say, how can I possibly say a thing like that? Look at this life which I am entering as seen in the Sermon on the Mount, the lives of the saints and the life of Jesus Christ. I am so weak. I'm constantly falling. How can I? You must just say, I believe this word of the resurrection. I believe the old word spoken unto Abraham. That man was dead and as it were physically and so was Sarah's womb. But God told him that they would have a child. He believed God and I believe God. I believe that though I am weak and helpless and hopeless and vile and without strength, I believe this God of the resurrection, this God who can bring to life the things that are not, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which are not as though they were. I believe he can call into life within me a new man and a new nature and give me strength and power. That is Christian faith. It is faith that enables the believer to dare to believe on the bare word of God that one day he will be faultless and blameless without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Through this faith, he can believe that he which has begun a good work in us will perform until the day of Jesus Christ and can stand confidently and defy everybody and everything, possessing it, possessing it, He no longer fears death and the grave. Indeed, he no longer fears final judgment because he knows that he has passed from judgment into life in Christ Jesus. I think it's summarized in this word that I already read. The faith of Abraham is a faith that says he does not look to himself to find justification, but he looks entirely to Christ and all that he is in Christ. For all you this morning who look to Christ, who look to the fact that God delivered him up for your trespasses and raised him for the dead, from the dead for your justification, I beckon you to come and eat and drink at the table of our Lord this morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, there's an invitation in the bulletin. And we have open communion here at Richland. You're welcome to come and take a chair at this table as we eat together. If you can live under that invitation, which is really a summation of what I've just read in many ways. We come, we come with those to eat who have possessed the faith of Abraham. The Abraham, faith of Abraham to believe God, to do the impossible, to bring us to life in Christ, to cause our hearts to look to Christ alone for our righteousness this morning. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful this morning for this table grateful for the fact on the night you were betrayed you took the bread and you took the wine and you broke the bread and distributed among the people and and your admonition to them was do this do this in remembrance of me oh lord we do it in remembrance of you 
we do it in remembrance that you were delivered up for our trespass. And God raised you from the dead for our justification and that's where our hope resides. That's where we stand today. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for those elders who are going to help us this morning to distribute to come. We'll distribute the elements to you in the pews. You can hold them collectively and we'll partake together this morning. Represents the body of our Lord that was broken for us.
Paul writes in another place when we were dead in trespasses and sins. God was in the midst of a plan to deliver up his son for our trespasses. It would bring us to life and plant faith in our hearts to trust the one this represents, Christ. Take and be grateful that you possess that faith. This represents the blood of Christ.
If we would have visited the temple in the day in which it stood and Orthodox Judaism was practiced, it was an incredibly gory place. The sacrifices and the blood. But no long no matter how long we would have stayed, it never would have been gory enough. There would have never been enough blood spilt to do the work. It was only a picture, a picture again that God would have to do it. God would have to do it. In the temple, it was done year after year. But then Jesus came. And he was delivered up to death by the Father. He was crushed by the Father. And it was enough. It was enough. And it's the only thing that will be enough. His work. Again, drink and thank God that you rest there. I think it would be good this morning to close by singing that song one more time, just as our benediction. Let's stand and do that.